Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Broadway Drumming 101 or through Venmo at Broadway Drumming 101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD 101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD 101. We appreciate any support you can give. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. You later went on uh, later in 2002 to be the drummer for a new show called Hairspray. How did you go about getting that show? Uh, Well, Hairspray, uh, so the MD and the contractor uh, wanted me there. Um, the uh, MD I had worked with already, and you know uh, yourself that uh, you know. Oft, oftentimes, if an MD is comfortable with you, uh, they want you there the next time, and that's that's one way. Uh, so in this case, Lon Hoyt was the MD, uh, and he uh, uh, Mark Shaman I did not know. And he wasn't weighing in. Um, John, it was John Miller's show, and and he he uh, did want me there. Uh, I had worked with the choreographer on Rocky Horror, Jerry Mitchell, but Jerry uh, was working with somebody else at the time, so that wasn't necessarily the ticket. I think it was Lon and uh, and 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 John at the time. That's how I I got involved with that, and. Uh, that was uh, uh, a good experience. Uh, it you know it ran for I think six and a half years. It was my longest show. Um, it was wildly successful early on, and um, I, ultimately I did uh, the movie. Not the original. There was an original movie that this show was based on, and then there was a movie that was based on the show. And I did that. And then I did Hairspray Live a number of years ago. And uh, so it was kind of the the gift that kept giving. And I, I was uh, that that way again, Mark. Uh, Mark had some demos. He never played them for me. Um, and he said, do your thing. And so I drew from, you know, it was 60s based, but there was also stuff that 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 was 70s ish. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's how that worked. It was, you know, we, we, we went to Seattle, uh, there was a, a good band there and, and then, uh, we were there for six weeks and then brought it here.
So since it was such a successful show, I'm sure you probably had a lot of people reaching out to you to try to sub for you. What were the criteria that you used in order to make sure that the person that you're going to bring in was qualified to be a sub for you at Hairspray? It's a really good question. Uh, and, and, a, and a question that I'm sure you've had to answer yourself, what, what could work here? For any show, you have to get somebody who can, can follow a conductor, right? You have to, even if it's on click, which, which, which Hairspray was, let's say, maybe 70% on click or something, maybe a little more. But yeah, so you don't necessarily have to watch them all. But then there are times the click disappears. They're, they're play- you have to get somebody who can watch a conductor, I think, right? Now, that eliminates 98% of the drummers that I know. When you recommend somebody, it's, it's your reputation. Then you have to have a sense that this person stylistically can pull off what it is that needs to be pulled off and the, that their vibe is not going to be troubling to anybody. You know, they're friendly enough and they're prompt. There's no issue there. Now you got other th- factors, geography availability you know uh can could they help you in a pinch so i do things uh, where i i would use a smaller number of subs and give them a lot more work rather than a large number of subs and give them very little work because there there'd be times that, that that i would i might need help and they were perfectly happy to 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 help because it was an account for them right uh, now, the other thing is, you know, uh, how are they going to prepare this show? Sub, the sub job on Broadway is the hardest. Subbing on a drum chair on Broadway is the hardest job that I've ever done in music. Period. End of story. You know, and I've only subbed on, I think, three different shows in my life. They were all, it was all the hardest thing. Uh, so... You know, what, what do you look for there? Uh, there? There's one guy that I used a lot who would karaoke, you know, more or less. He would cop the fills. He'd cop the grooves. He'd, he'd study that stuff. And he'd come in and he'd play everything sort of verbatim. And he did a good job of it. So nobody had a problem with it, you know. And even then, it's not going to sound like you, you know. I don't know if that's good or bad, but, you know, it's a hard job, right? A, a drummer defines every single beat of music for everybody, everywhere, on, on top of the stage and underneath. So even if you're playing to the click, even if I, if I came in and suffer you on Ain't Too Proud, I could cop everything that you play and it won't sound like you. He doesn't play as loud in that spot that you did. Shit, I watched him so many times and I listened to the, and I didn't get that? No. He doesn't play that loud. You're playing too loud in that spot. Oh, he plays louder in that spot. What are you doing? Dynamics are the hardest thing to reproduce uh, because you just, you just, they just are. You know, you, you hear them one way when you're preparing and you think, but it, now the other thing is the balance within the kit. I had a, a guy come in uh, to Beautiful uh, and subbed and um, he, he, 
You know how you distribute things dynamically within your hands and your feet, and this is the mix of the kit. This was one situation where the guy said, the MD said, he, it just doesn't sound, I mean, the bass drum is super loud and whatever. Not unmusical, just too different, you know? Uh, hairspray was, um, Hairspray had some challenging things. I never played, I never played something to make it challenging for challenging sake, ever. I tried to make it stylistically appropriate and I always had the sub in mind too. Um, I, I, I tried not to go for things that were too complicated, but, but there was some demanding stuff in that show. Like Francisco played that show and he, what he played was so complicated, but that's just what, that's how his brain works, you know? He, it doesn't sound complicated when he plays it, but guys would come in and just pare it down, and the MD was fine with that. You just got the meat of it. Uh, with with my thing, they had to do a little, you know, some of those faster fills were, were part of the music, and they had to get that. So anyway, those were uh, among the considerations, right? There's a lot of them. Hairspray, wildly successful, runs until 2009. You get another show. If I'm not mistaken, everyday rapture. Yeah, man, you've done you've you've done your homework. It took me a while to remember the, the order of things. So, uh, but uh, in that period of time, things had happened. I was on the road, on and off uh, during Hairspring. Uh, I, I I got Art Garfunkel's gig, and we're going out and doing gigs with him, and then a singer, Linda Etter, uh, and uh, she was. Uh, fine singer, uh, more theatrical based. Anyway, both of these artists were touring and, uh, and then those gigs and hairspray went away. Um, Michael Keller had offered me, um, the, the production of West Side Story that was happening at that time. And like an idiot, I turned it down because uh, Art and uh, Linda had a bunch of gigs and I was sort of happy to be emancipated but really working, um, doing road gigs. Then the road gigs went away. So there was a, there was a good period of time there where um, I wasn't doing a show. I mean, it was maybe the better part of a year. And um, it had been the first time in a while that that was the case. And... Um, so I think I subbed, I may have my chronology wrong, but I think I subbed for Warren Oates. He, he had um, the Frank Sinatra show, Come Fly Away or something like that. Fly, I, I can't remember. Anyway, um, but yes, Everyday Rapture was a limited run uh, on Broadway, maybe six weeks or something like that. And uh, um, yeah, that was the next, that was the next thing. Uh, hmm. didn't, it didn't run a long time, but it wasn't supposed to. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was a limited run, yeah. You got a call to do a show about airplane pilots called Catch Me If You Can? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie from what I remember. I didn't see the show. Did you like the show? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, Catch Me did not run long. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't the success everybody expected it, 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 it should have been because uh, it was everybody was involved in Hairspray. The, 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 the actor won best, you know, the Tony for best male in the in musical. Um, and uh, 
almost everybody was the same, but there was one person that wasn't, and that was the writer. And somehow the story was deemed uh, less compelling. Uh, there were people involved who, who had an idea of what it should be, and that was going to be different than the movie, which, you know, you can't argue with the movie. The movie was masterful. Uh, there, were, there was great music to play in this, and I loved playing it. Band was on stage. It was big bandy. Uh, there were things that were swing. There were things that New Orleans. There were there were, you know, rock things. It was a it was a great all around thing. But uh, it went away after about four months. Tell me about your first time playing on the Tony Awards. Actually, I've um, oh well, I've only done the actual ceremony once. I can't remember what it was. Either Hairspray or Catch Me, but I can't remember which one. I'm pretty sure it was one of those two, but I, I have done the recordings before and, you know, and, and you, you probably have too, right? Where you, 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 yeah. So, uh, oftentimes, uh, they'll have a guy who plays the, you know, a drummer who's there in the orchestra, in the Tony's orchestra, but they'll often bring in, uh, a drummer who is familiar with the show. So the MD and the drummer can come in. Maybe there are others, but maybe not. And, uh, and, uh, you know, do the recording session. And it's not hard because you've been doing it. And, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you do one song, I think, typically. And, and that's that. What is your experience in doing cast recordings? And how is that different from doing a jingle from back in the day? Oh, yeah. Well, jingles are short. You know, you might do a 15 second, 30 second, 60 second, 90 second, whatever. Uh, but, but, you know, it's one, one session you're done and, and, it, and it usually doesn't, you know, it was usually an hour, you know, with a cast recording, as you well know, might have, uh, a couple days in the studio. Some uh, have been more pleasant experiences than others. And it kind of depends on things that are beyond our pay grade. You know, how much do they care? They, they, it used to be that they would make you play with the singers live. I mean, the Footloose thing. You know, we'd be doing take after take after take because the singers, you know, might have had an issue, you know, and the, and and we were playing them playing it live. This was the, the same, the same, you know, record where they refused to do a click, and that I think it was really more common for musicians and singers to be playing cast albums live, which was in and of itself an enormous pain in the butt. But uh, uh, that that I think is mostly different now as people have come to know that these, you know, for isolation purposes, for, you know, sanity purposes, uh, you concentrate on music and then you do vocals afterward. Um, so uh, in a general sense, they're usually pretty pleasant. You know, the music is already... You know, you might, they might be tweaking things arrangement wise. You get a decent level, you know, your basic parts and you go in and do them. There are common threads between all the musicians that have done shows that have been successful over a long period of time. And one of those is to be able to play multiple types of music and take all that knowledge and distill it in the form of a Broadway show. And when you get to do a Broadway show, it, it, it gets distilled and then distilled again. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, and you're like, wait, what's this? 
Yes, that's right. And and it's important to recognize that. See, that's the thing that I think most guys don't know. Again, we go back, right? But uh, Warren Oates calls it almost music, right? <laughs> so, uh, he's calling it almost. And the reason why, I mean, he's, he's, he's one of the wittiest guys I know. But one of the reasons why he calls it almost music is exactly what you just said. So let's say the composer comes up with a great idea and here's what it is. Well, automatically now, if it's in a show setting, you might not be playing it at an authentic volume level. If you were playing it in a club or in a concert or whatever, or a recording session, you'd be playing it. Now you've shrunken that down. Is it important to know that? I think it is. Yes, I think it's important to know that because now you're going to, you know, you, you want to bring all the intensity uh, that you can and all the intent, but you, but you have to, you have to pare down the volume. So you should be aware of that. If you're not aware of that and you think that's the go-to thing, then you might play like a pussycat. <laughs> 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 That's going to be the theme of this podcast. Don't play like a pussycat. <laughs> yeah, so, so intensity, but so and then now you have dialogue. Oh well, we want underscoring. Okay, so now you're shrinking this down to to, to something so the, the the person can be heard uh, speaking. And then you have dancers. Now they're gonna they're gonna have you play on the end of two in a way that completely fucks up the groove. Uh, because you, because people are looking on the stage and they're seeing a, a kick or whatever, and that's your gig. But you should know, right, that that's a that's kind of weird. They injected it in for that reason. That happened to me. It ain't too proud, and and people in the pit were actually wondering why is this happening. Like the bridge of my girl, where it goes into the the string uh, and string and horn. Uh, line, and you know, you start playing it. Then halfway through, we have to go down to piano because there's a a line that Smokey Robinson says to the Temptations or says to to David Ruffin, I think. And it's like, man, that was the best part of the song, but we had to play it like, you know, really, really soft. And there are reasons for that. When you see the show, you understand it. But when you're in the pit, you're like, it gets distilled. That's the whole distilling process of of music to a musical yes that's right you've got all of those things going on and and then uh, you know uh, another thing is you know when I, i'm playing gig uh and i do as i said i embrace the click and i like to use it for reference and sometimes i'll even use it for the first few bars of its song so i can you know and then then i like to turn it off and de play and then if you listen to the recording and you run the click you know, there are very few guys who are going to stay with it from beginning to end. Uh, but, you know, it, it, hopefully it will have a certain proximity. But um, that's because you're, you're doing a gig. And it's only about you guys on the stage, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, in, 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 in a show, you, you're rounding off things. 
you know, to, to here's the tempo. We, 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 we're going to pick this tempo. The song moved a little in different places. And I, I've heard you point out uh, that it feels much better. And I, I don't disagree with you. But in, in a circumstance like that, it becomes much harder for a sub to try and reproduce those things because it becomes family secrets. Like you guys play it all the time. So this is going to move faster. This is going to move slower. You don't even think about it. A guy coming in is like, what the fuck is happening here? Why is this faster? Why is this? Well, that's just how it developed. And so, you know, it becomes much harder for that sub. Uh, So yeah, distilled down. Yeah. That's the, that's the nature of that beast. Bonnie and Clyde, Jesus Christ, superstar, Jekyll Hyde, soul doctor, then beautiful, the Carol King musical, another yeah. smash hit. Yeah. Yeah. That ran for uh, five, years. five years. Five years. Yeah, that very is long. very long time for a musical. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you had a chance to meet and hang out with Carol King. She, she came, uh, and I I did know uh, not her. Uh, we, we, we actually played with her, uh, the, the show we went, we did one of those early morning shows where you're, you're outside and you're playing and it's winter and you, you feel like your hands are going to break. I actually played with gloves on, you know, like, like winter gloves. On. But anyway, she played with us and yes, yeah, she came and, uh, um, uh, that that was uh, that was one of those experiences like hairspray. I didn't think hairspray was going to run. I didn't think beautiful was going to run. I thought that hairspray was like you know okay. So let's get this straight. Like the lead is a is 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 a really really heavy girl with a squeakyish voice, and the other lead is a guy who for no particular reason is wearing a dress the whole show, and and he talks like this. And and that's going to somehow capture the hearts and minds of America, right? (laughs) No, I don't think so. And then, of course, it did. Beautiful, I thought, was going to appeal primarily to, you know, uh, suburban, you know, New York women. And I, I thought it was a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good story and uh, beautiful songs, but I just thought that the demographic wasn't what it turned out to be. You never know. That's the key. One of the keys to Broadway is that you never know. Yeah, we didn't win for best musical. We won best, uh, we won a, a few best somethings, including best actress. But there was another show. That took it, that was kind of a sleeper of a show and it gave it a little more of a life. And I think that there, there, there are lots of thoughts about that, but whatever. Uh, it, it had already um, become successful and made its money back within a year, which most shows don't do. And, you know, it was, it was doing well. One point I wanted to make just from a drum standpoint about uh, beautiful um, Carol King songs. Beautiful, beautiful songs. Um, the drums, uh, I, I tried to make the drum parts as musical and sparse. And uh, um, the fills were not n- nothing complicated. And um, I tried to make it in the character of the music. I think we all try and do that, right? Um, and, and I was conscious that when subs... I was conscious about subs, always was conscious about subs, that the position of the monitor, the position of the music stands, the uh, 
the, 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 the drums, the, the positioning of the cymbals even, and that, uh, that when guys came in to learn the show, it was going to be a basic show. If I had done a little more with one thing or another, not when they were there and it wasn't the expectation. I, I think about the subs a lot when I'm even, when I'm developing a drum part because I want it to be sub friendly. I think uh, I think that's very important, and I know that there are guys who aren't necessarily as concerned about that, uh, and it, it can be very difficult for their subs. Um, and I think I mean, maybe even there are some guys who know that, and I, I, I don't I don't applaud that. Uh, I think that if you if your setup becomes uh, and, and your parts become unnecessarily complicated. Uh, or electronics become unnecessarily complicated. I think you're doing a big disservice to the show and to the guys that you have coming in that are supposed to be, you know, holding up your contribution while you're not there. That's my own, my own thought. Look, if sound designers could have it their own way, sometimes I know one in particular, and he works a lot, and I like him very much, and he's good. But he would much prefer everything to be on, on uh, rolling V drums because what those guys really want is, is, is the ability to control and isolate and have, and have everything sort of squashed and, you know, whatever. So the whole idea of, yeah, we need this snare drum here, but then we need this snare drum there. By the time they're done, your various snare drums are going to be barely discernible, maybe sometimes not at all discernible. The fact that you chose this vintage kit because it was of that vintage period, and you and I have talked about this, <laughs> that, that what they really, what the guys, the sound designers want, and the and guys who are mixing and guys, you know, et cetera, they want, they don't want your bass drum to ring a long period of time. They don't want your snare drum to ring. They don't want the toms to ring too long. And by the time they're done compressing it and muffling it and putting it through the house, uh, which, which is going to be underneath the singers and, and, and mixed in with the band, you're not going to fucking know the difference between snare drum A and snare drum B unless it's like, okay, this is where I have this, this tiny little thing and it's tuned up uh, you know, high as a kite and, and you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, or that, a marching snare drum, you know, if it's right, marching. And, per, yeah. Perhaps, right? Yeah. But for the most part, go with more simple and, and understand what the a final product is going to be, not how much you might be impressing, you know, other drummers or what it would be if it was your record and your gig, but, but what the whole picture is and what it's ultimately going to sound like out there. If you're going in and you're creating a new show called, uh, I don't know, uh, Rush, the 2112 musical. Mm. Now, that's not a good example because you're going to have to have a big drum set. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever show. And yeah. you want to make it interesting for yourself so that you don't get bored and you want to have the electronics and you have two snares over here and your main snare and six cymbals and a splash and you know marimba and just to make it more interesting for yourself i guess that's one way of of doing it 
And sometimes you might have to do that if you don't have a percussionist and they want to combine everything. So that's, I guess that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. That's Then you, you, you may have a hybrid book. Um, I think the hardest show I ever did to learn. Well, I only did three shows as a sub. Uh, I subbed on next to normal and then ultimately took over the chair at Damien Bassman had originated that part and a bunch of the songs, I think, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, were, were songs that Tom Kitt, who had a band and Damien was in that band and they used to play those songs. And, uh, Damien is a, a terrific percussionist. So he had, uh, he had orchestra bells sort of above the hi-hat and there were vibes right behind me. And then one timpani over that way. Uh, And there were some really tricky things. It took me a a good two solid months of practicing uh, because it had been a long time since I had played mallets and I was never a great mallet player. I mean, I did my scales and whatever. And I could play things in college, but that was when it ended, you know. So anything else was just hit a bell here, hit a bell there, that kind of thing. This was like, Damien had worked out something where it was like, you know, a cymbal part mixed in with orchestra bells and you had ding, ding, ding. It was really kind of tricky. And he loved it, you know, and he's good at that. I, I don't think it was sub-friendly, you know. Uh, and the, the the vibes part was wasn't four mallets, it was two mallets, but there were some you know a bunch of arpeggios and stuff like that. So that 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 was hard to do, and that was a high British book. That there there are times when electronics might be fully warranted, where you really need another sound of a kit altogether. And I think Tommy Igo had had a uh, an electronic kit and a regular acoustic kit, and that. And he did that for reasons because the sounds were actually very, very different. And uh, he would go over to that kit and play that, the electronics at one point. And that made sense. Or if you need sounds that are really super processed and you don't want to sort of leave it to them to figure out how to do that, that's another justification. Or, you know, sound effects or whatever. So, yeah, I, I would say, but, but do it judiciously. Uh, and when necessary, and uh, make it easy for subs and yourself to dial that up when needed, and you know, and 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 move through it. Don't make it complicated. I, I, I'll tell you a very quick story. When I was subbing for Sean on, on Saturday Night Live, he had to trigger. Uh, a sequencer as the beginning of, it was like, you know, live from New York, it's Saturday night. And Sean would hit a pedal next to his hi-hat and it would start a sequencer and you'd play along with it, right? You know, there would be clicks and I can't remember the specifics, but anyway, it's kind of a, it's kind of an archaic uh, little pedal setup that he had. He could work it fine. He never had a hitch. So there were there were three there were two rehearsals or so. One included the dress rehearsal, which had an audience, and then there was a show. And live from New York is Saturday night. Hit the thing, everything's fine. Rehearsal one. In the uh, dress rehearsal, same thing. 
hit the pedal, everything's fine. The show, as Ashton Kutcher is the is the guest, and he's doing this, he's doing this monologue in the in his underwear, and he's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Anyway, it's really funny. Uh, and live from New York, it's Saturday night, and I hit the pedal, and nothing happened. And I hit the pedal again, and nothing happened. And then then I hit it again, and it triggered. Now, the 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 the, the period of time was felt like a, an eternity. And, and certainly everybody knew that the music hadn't started yet. And uh, it wasn't an eternity, but it was long enough, you know. So I passed this along to anybody who might be d- using, uh, you know, uh, electronics uh, to be very conscious of the effectiveness and the ease with which that stuff... Um, is uh is 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 workable you know i often ask this to many of my guests what are some things drummers should never do in a broadway pit you know you got to keep your focus so if it's early on and you know and you got a big break i mean be careful if you're gonna you know divert to reading something you're reading or something you're looking at with your phone or whatever uh uh be alert the obvious things, you know, like any gig, you, you, you know, be aware of everything that you've come to know, uh, when you were preparing and, 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 you know, stay focused and don't talk. I mean, don't start conversations with people, you know, you don't know if you're going to be razzing somebody who needs to, you know, if you're right next to somebody and, you know, you just, just stay focused. You know? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. There is what. There's one other thing that I thought of uh, when you say what, what shouldn't a drummer or what should a drum, what what shouldn't he do? Um, it, it's good for him to be seated and uh, in the pit early if he's subbing. You know? What should a sub drummer on a Broadway show never do? I think that a sub drummer, when he comes in, he should be there early, seated, ready to rock, um, uh, and not be playing. If he's going to be playing, maybe on a pad, if 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 the drummer has a pad there, but don't do a lot of playing uh, because it it annoys people, you know. Uh, hmm. that, I noticed that there's certain subs that come in sometimes. I mean, I'm not there when sub drummers come, but there's certain subs that come in on other instruments and they're playing a lot before the show. I mean, if they have to tune and they got to do a little, little, whatever, cool. But if, if it goes on for a while, it can be annoying and people, you know, become annoyed, you know, they want to go there to sit down and get their thing together and then, and then do the thing. Also make sure that, you know, uh, chances are if they're avions and they're personalized and people have their own mix, that's great. But if you change something, change it back, change a setting, change an angle of, you know, the kit and, da, 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 da. and uh, don't leave stuff there. You know, brought a drink in or whatever, you know, take it sandwich, out. sandwich wrappers and yeah. <laughs> 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 throwing the garbage in the corner and <laughs> yeah 
And I think also uh, this goes back to the subs and, you know, choosing how, what they might do when they're playing. Be very, very, very careful what you change. Um, that there, as you, as you have articulated, there are times during a rehearsal or, or previews or maybe beyond where you play something and you might even work it into a fill. Let's say it's a dance accent or something that goes along with something they're singing. Uh, 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 you know, if all you're doing as a sub is isolating the music and saying, oh, well, when that fill comes, I'll play in the spirit of that fill, but it's going to be a different fill. You're making a decision that might actually affect something on the stage. Be careful about that. You know, if, you're, if there's a groove, be careful about injecting something into that groove or adding ghost notes where there aren't or taking ghost notes away where there are. Just be careful about that because all that stuff is, is for better or for worse, very familiar to everybody. You know, you don't have to karaoke it. You don't have to, but it, there's a process by which you figure out where you can and can't. And it's better to start more, not, not necessarily karaoke, but, but really, really, really paying homage to the guy that you're, you know, you've learned the show from. You've done, you've done several, several shows over the many decades. Do you watch your own show from the audience? Mostly I don't. And uh, the reason for that is because you, if you do that, um, the experience we have in the pit, is is very focused and you're hearing every little thing that everybody else does and, and what you you know especially what you want to hear you've dialed your mix you're tuning and you know what you do and you're you know you know what you've brought to that and you know that when you play this little figure on the hi-hat uh, it's that, that that you know all these little things and you go out in the audience and you listen and you can hear like 65 percent of it it's heartbreaking you know, it's uh, so have I done it? I have done it. But in, in a general sense, um, we're dealing with a medium, a, a medium where um, where the vocals and the talking and all of that takes such precedent over the music that um, the mix that you don't subject yourself to. Uh, you don't have to hear like what you might hear on a cast album, a cast album, which is like, you know, where they mix the vocals louder than any other area of music ever. I don't know whose idea this was, but like the band is puny often and the vocals are so freaking loud that when you want to hear something in the band, you have to turn it up and your ears are practically bleeding from the vocals. They don't do this in opera, which is opera is a vocal based medium but but for some reason you can hear the orchestra better the mix is higher so you know when you're when you're in the pit i prefer just sort of to stay there and hear this vocal and pretend it's a gig right do you go back and ever listen to any cast albums that you've done no no i don't i don't because again it's the same experience um i mean if i if i had to learn a song there was one time 
I was doing this gig at 54 Below for a then not well-known Ben Platt, who became the guy, you know. And he decided to do, and you'll know this, I Can't Stand Still from Footloose. You maybe, you probably don't remember this. I forgot it, yeah. It's like I Uh, I just get that out of my brain. Yeah, well, you probably blocked it out of your (laughs) memory or self-preservation. It's not a bad song. It's not a bad song, but it it was kind of kitschy, and Ben wanted to do it. And I had no idea what I had done, and I had to listen to that. But uh, other than than a reference, generally uh, listening to cast albums, because of how they're mixed, not because of who not because of the songs that were written or anything, but the, the ultimate mix that people seem to prefer, it winds up being a, 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 an uncomfortable experience. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm more or less, I can tell you that I'm good with my playing on these, these records. I'm, I'm good with it. I, I, and, and sometimes I would be, I'd be, I'd be fine, you know, for somebody to say, well, how did, how does Clint again play? Let's listen to what he did on, you know, on Bonnie and Clyde's, you know, <laughs> so they didn't, didn't run long, a lot of fun to play. I'd be fine with it. But, uh, you know, as a, as a, as an experience of myself, um, and no, not so much. If there's one record that exemplifies Clint again, and, and you'd say, you know what, you need to listen to this. Would that be the record behind you? Or the nope. record to you to decide the West Side Story one, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, West Side Story, I'm I'm proud of, and uh, you, I'd be fine for you to listen to that. But would I say that 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 was stylistically sort of coming from my heart? No, I mean obviously uh, a, a clear, an obvious example of a show of music that I did not originate. Although I was able to put my, I was able to play on a couple of songs, stuff that I wanted to play. And if you know that show, I can explain what those things were. But, uh, uh, you, you know, recently, uh, if you, I don't know if you are friends with Peter Erskine, uh, but he, he was doing a thing on Facebook, maybe Instagram too, I'm not sure, of infinity drum. He would call it infinity drummers. And he would just take a drummer. Uh, and uh, sometimes you would know the guy, of course, and then other times it might be somebody that you weren't as familiar with. And he did one for me, which was incredibly flattering. Uh, it was after the West Side Story. And he took a record that I'd played on like 20, 20 years ago, was uh, on a, a label called DMP, where I did a few records. And this was Warren Bernhardt, the great piano player, Warren Bernhardt. Chuck Loeb had produced it. And um, I can't remember the name of the song, but anyway, uh, I went back and listened to it because he had singled it out. It was very, very nice of him. And uh, I liked it. I was happy with it. Uh, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> so then there's uh, also, there, there have been a couple of records that I played on with Hiram Bullock that I um, um, liked a bunch of tracks that were on that uh if you took a, if you took records that I've played on, I could probably pick a song versus the whole record. You know that I'd say, "Oh yeah, listen to this." You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you you have the same experience where sometimes you listen to something and you say, "Okay, that was pretty good," and that's that's usually the best it's going to get for me. Okay, that was pretty good. I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with it. 
versus like something off. Oh, I could have done that again. I would, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a poster of West Side Story behind you. You did the movie and the the soundtrack. Yes, the 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 the, the soundtrack was the was the thing that was a, a very special experience. Um, and the movie was a kind of a fluky thing where where we need a band to be simulating uh, in 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 my case what what I had played in the recording studio. Uh, in the actual movie, uh, there's a there's a scene in the gym where the the jets and the sharks are there, and it's a dance at the gym. And there's a you know so so there was a band there, and uh, I was one of the musicians that was you know in that. And we did get credit on the movie in the role, uh, but uh, unfortunately for the recording sessions, we did not get. Um, we did not get credit, as most musicians don't. I, I had wished that they had put at least the soloists, you know, in that because it was, uh, it was, you know, one of the most amazing experiences of my career. I, uh, I had never played West Side Story before, and um, I had worked with the music producer before and the contractor, and they said, "Would you like to do this?" And it took me a minute uh, to say yes because. I did not want to put myself in a position of, of saying, I knew the music was hard and um, it was the New York Philharmonic uh, ultimately and, and uh, Gustavo Dudamel um, and, you know, rock star conductor. But I, you know, these guys are, uh, they've played West Side Story. There's a drummer who has played West Side Story with them a bunch and I wasn't that guy. Uh, so, but ultimately it worked out, uh, well, they did it in three parts. First part was playing the whole score. I call it the world's most expensive demo. They did the whole score, um, with some ringers and, uh, some members of the Phil and some members of the Met and a great conductor, a composer, um, who ultimately was, got arrangement credit on West Side Story named David Newman. And, uh, then they shot the movie. So the actors could sing to this world's most expensive demo and dance to it and whatever. And then we did the music again, this time with the Phil Proper and Dudamel conducting. And um, COVID shut us down. There was about, there were about three sessions left. And so there's a, a drummer on the West Coast who played uh, Prologue and a couple of uh, incidental things. Um, but I had done the rest of it here. I need to go see that movie. I hear it's really good. It's good and it's, uh, the sound is good. And Spielberg came uh, to the drum booth once. Uh, the, w- he, was, he, he, he was walking around with his handheld. He apparently does that on his movies. But he, we thought he might be do, getting footage for the making of West Side Story. That that was what what we were told. And um, there's a song uh, in there called Cool, and Cool features the drums and their drum breaks. And so at that point, he came to the drum booth, and um, you know, I'm I'm trying to concentrate on playing, and there's Spielberg outside of the plexi like this, and. <laughs> He opens the door for the next take and comes up to me and he's standing right here with his 
handheld while I'm going, and Spielberg's there, and I'm, I, I could barely keep it together, Clayton. It was, I, I mean, it was, you know, he's a lovely guy. It was very flattering, but I was kind of freaked, you know. <laughs> there are times where I've done gigs or shows and people that I've looked up to are watching me play. And for a few minutes there, it, it makes me feel a certain way. I get intimidated, but then I realize that, you know, I'm on the gig and it's my gig. Do you get rattled in situations like that or other times where there are people that you've grown up listening to? Say, for instance, uh, you know, if Buddy Rich was still alive yeah. and he came to see you play. Would you be like, oh, man, Buddy Rich is here? And would you change anything or or are you uh, how do you approach situations like that? I have become conscious of, of, of uh, at times where there, there are musicians that I love who are listening. Listen, man, one time I was playing with Gordon Edwards and stuff. And I mean, I can give you a few of these examples, but th th this one. And, and Gad is in the audience. And Purdy's in the audience. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> There was another time when uh, uh, it was a tribute. Uh, Cornell Dupree had passed, and it was at BB King's, and uh, Steve Jordan had put this whole thing together. And and, and Steve said to uh, Gordon, uh, "Would you like, you know, Chris and Steve to be playing?" You know, Cornell was in the band, and uh, and Gordon said, "No, uh, you know, this is my band now," and I was the drummer, so. I got up to play with stuff, Gordon Edwards and stuff, after Steve and Chris had played together in Chris's band. He brought up Steve to play with him as a guest. Gad was standing on the side the whole time when I was playing, and there were two other drum sets on the stage. Fortunately, I didn't know he was there. I didn't know he was standing there on the stage, but I, I guess the answer to your question is, it's very difficult during those times to really, to really, you know, tune out, you know, heroes and not be aware that they're listening to you, which of course is the worst thing you can possibly do, but it's human. If you were going to advise somebody on what you need to know, or like how to become a success as a Broadway musician... Like, what would you, what would you tell somebody that's, you know, graduated from college and I'm, you know what, I'm, I'm about to get out of Berkeley or Juilliard or whatever you, you're going to conservatory. Uh, was it, that's not North, North Texas state anymore. It's university of North Texas. These drummers that come out of there, man, I'm moving to New York. Yeah. What would you say to them? Well, what I'm going to, what I'm going to say is not necessarily, it, it's just the way I've approached it, but I, I, I'm not advocating it for per se, but I, I really, really, really think that when you set your eye on money, on on a job that's going to make money, it doesn't generally work well. I mean, there's nothing wrong with no. Prepare yourself in every possible way you can for every possible situation. But be the best drummer you can be. Be the best musician you can be. 
and learn a million different kinds of styles and do a million different kinds of gigs. And sure, you know, if you can get into sub or you might be able to get a tour or you play some, some, some show, like I played the, one of the first shows, I, if not the first show I ever played was Godspell in Fishkill, New York. You know, <laughs> I mean, it probably paid like $74 a show. But but take those things like 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 I mean, look, when you think about it, you have to. And, and I, I, I watched Michael Keller uh, talk about this on your uh, podcast. You got to cut your teeth. You know, he was talking about like, you know, subbing for for people or taking a tour. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, don't start, you know, if you want to be a. If you want to be a great lawyer or you want to be a great advertising man or you want to be a great doctor, you, you don't say, listen, uh, I know you're, you're strategizing on how you're going to fight, you know, uh, this, this, this thing if, if you're an attorney or, or, or how you're going to perform brain surgery. Can I just go and watch you? <laughs> no, you know what? Take lessons, maybe. Study with people. Go to shows, take off, off, off Broadway gigs, get in any conductible situation you possibly can so you can figure that out. Make sure you play well with a click. Listen to as many different kinds of styles as you can. And yeah, if you want, you know, I mean, listen to some cast records or whatever, but, the, but don't make that the goal. Don't make it the goal. Be the best drummer you can be so that people are interested in You know, there's some great drummers uh, doing Broadway shows now. There's some really great drummers. Uh, they're, they're great at other things. They're not, they, 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 you know, people want them because they're great drummers, not because they're great show drummers. Right. So my advice is to be as well-rounded and as great a musician as you can possibly be become. You will be more attractive to any gig, including shows. Does that make sense? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's one story I'll tell you very quickly that, that, that I was I was doing a rehearsal with John Miller's band. And uh, I got a phone call at 10 of 4 in the afternoon from Will Lee, who said, can you come to Radio City right now and play Sir Duke with Stevie Wonder? And I was like, what? I, blah, 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 blah. And I said, yeah. And I said to the guys, you understand, right? They said, yes, we understand. I was wearing, like, I was riding a motorcycle at the time. I had fucked up clothes, and I ran to the, and Stevie was there, and he was kind of pissed because the guys that they were, were supposed to do this weren't doing the job. And I had played that music. I was familiar with that music, right? I, I don't know how many times I had played Sir Duke. And then, you know, Sir Duke became three more songs because he liked what he was hearing. Wow. So we had a total of four songs. That was Tony Bennett's uh, 91st birthday party. It was a, a, a really nice situation, but um, you got to be ready. I think you got to be ready and, and, and just be, become a, a, the best musician you can be. So if, when these things happen, and they can happen quickly, and on a high level, hopefully, 
you know, you'll be ready to rock. That is, that should be a lesson, you know, that, uh, that it's, it's, it's more about, uh, becoming a great, uh, drummer. And, 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 and if this thing comes your way or you want to move toward it, you have a lot to bring to the table. If you had to pick your top five drummers of all time, <laughs> who would that be? Or who would they be? This question has become harder as I've gotten older because when I was younger and when I came into the city, let's say, um, I was, you know, you could hear so many great musicians all the time. Uh, the guys that were really influencing me back then. I mean, first, you know, the guy that I remember being one of my heroes early on, there was Ringo. And then, then uh, oddly, I'm all over the board here. There was, you know, I became a buddy fanatic. And then like, uh, uh, but, but as time went on, you know, and I was listening to more, and I loved Billy Cobham, I loved him. And then uh, Tony Williams, when I heard, that was like my gateway record to jazz was Miles Davis four and more. And I heard Tony Williams and I was like, oh my God, the, the working drummers in New York City, they, they, I call them the three Steves. So there was Gad, there was Jordan, and Ferroni. They were all like doing gigs all the time around me. You know, I could go hear them at any point. Guys like, you know, Erskine. Uh, it was a rich, rich period. And, and lots of other great drummers. But, you know, uh, Gad and, and, uh, and Jordan uh, and Ferroni were, were so special in their ways it was it, it, it was of, of that time period and the music being made in New York. When I first heard Steve Jordan, he was playing with the 24th Street Band, which ultimately became the Letterman Band. Uh, it, they were they were hugely successful in Japan, and you know people knew him in New York. It was Will Lee and Hiram Bullock and Steve Jordan and Clifford Carter. And uh, then Paul Schaefer, you know, brought uh, Will and Hiram and Steve. In. Anyway, those were guys I loved listening to. But as time has gone on, and I've embraced so many different kinds of drummers, and and feels have become a thing. And you know, uh, I, I think when you're young, you don't really understand feel as much. You might you might respond to it, but you don't really know. But uh, I, there are too many now to name. I never knew that information about the, uh, Steve Jordan and Hiram and, and Will, the 24th Street Band, were they playing? Yeah, and when I was young, I used to go hear them at 7th Avenue South, which was a, a great club that had, uh, you know, great music all the time. And uh, you could hear, you know, like French Toast was a band that Weka was playing in, and uh, Peter Erskine would play there with, uh, you know, like Don Grolnick and, uh, a 24th Street band and the Brecker brothers would play that Brecker brothers co-owned the club uh, and so you know you could hear Sanborn there you could hear um, Michelle Camilo I think and you know uh, but um, 24th Street band uh, I, I used to go here as much as I could it was that band and I, I, I remember being very young and Will Lee was so kind to me back then I mean we've since become uh, we, we played together in, in, in a number of different circumstances and I love playing with him. He's, he's fantastic. But at then, at that point I was a kid and I said, Man, I, I love the 24th street band. He gave me the three 24th street band records, uh, which were made in Japan. And this was a great 
freaking band. And Hiram and Will de- developed their whole partnership thing. You could see that. They, they were the first guys I knew to play wireless and they would dance all over the club and run outside on the street and still be playing while Jordan was holding down the fort, you know, and Jordan was and is unbelievable. You know, now he's with the Stones and sounds fantastic. Uh, anyway, those were early influences. So tell me about wh- why was the 24th Street Band? Were they doing something on 24th Street? Oh, I think they that that that, that uh, one or more of them lived on Twenty Fourth Street. I think that's what that was. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great band, man. So cool. You know, you're mentioning all of these players, and when I got to New York in 1993, uh, it was a little bit too late for me to be part of Mikel's because that closed down. I didn't know about Seventh Avenue South until that closed down Manny's car wash was still happening there was a club called the Metropolitan yeah room or club it was a restaurant or something yeah it was on uh was it First Avenue and yeah on the Upper East Side yeah and I used to go there and see all kind of people and you know there was the bottom line and the bitter end and okay it's 2022 now maybe I should ask some of these young people it's like yeah. there's got to be something happening where the next generation of musicians are all doing some things. Because I remember hearing stories when I used to take lessons from Tommy Campbell. Mm. You know, you had because he would talk about jazz players. Yeah, it, and you know, on any given night, there is Thelonious Monk here, and Miles Davis over here, and Sonny Rollins over here, and yeah. you know, everyone was doing something. And then in your era, there was, you know, all these people that you're mentioning that you work with. And in my era, you know, I had people that I came up with, but, you know, there's got to be people that are out now. I'm just curious there where, are. Things, where are things are happening. I know that the pandemic kind of screwed everything up for everybody, but well, now, coming back. yeah, people yeah. can go out and, and make music again. I know yeah. that Rockwood Music Hall is one place where people are, are doing things. Yeah, Do you know, right. you know where, where the well, other Bitter places end, are? Uh, Bitter End is still, uh, you know, and, and I play there. Um, you know, I think we, we, we almost have what might be considered a residency, maybe once every month and a half or month. Uh, but it's still going, and you can hear bands there. There's still some bands in town, and there are jazz clubs too, and they're still active. And I think the Vanguard is back, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, and so the, and Birdland is, is still going and, 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 uh, Iridium, and Blue Note. Yeah. Iridium. Right. So, uh, for sure we have, we still have more than they do in LA. You know, the LA guys tell me that there's still more clubs and more people playing them here. One of the things I worry about with younger drummers is the whole, you know, online thing and uh, i mean you can learn a lot from people who are showing you stuff and playing and people play do a lot of with play alongs and they post a lot of stuff with them playing along alone and i worry a lot about people who uh who have come to music and and sort of embrace music and are involved with music on a solitary level too much of the time that's that's a fear i have it's a it's a it's a it's a, a communicative thing. It involves other people. How you play 
is directly affected by things you're hearing in the moment. If those, if those moments are rehearsed, it has nothing to do with what you're going to be doing in, in the real world. So, you know, just like when we're talking, what I say affects you, what you say affects me, music is that. And, and people need to really, I think, keep that in mind now more than ever, more than ever, because now more than ever, you can lose sight of that. Endorsements that you have, you said you did the Yamaha, uh, was it Yamaha Night at NAMM? What's it called again? Yeah, Yamaha, Yamaha had Groove Night. Uh, yeah, Night, yes. a Yamaha artist for a while, a long while. And uh, Zildjian. And uh, uh, Promark drumsticks. Um, the heads that I'm using and have used for a while are, are, are uh, attack heads. Um, it's, a, it's always an eyebrow razor because people think that they're kind of somehow cut rate heads and they're not. But they, I like to use the word boutique. But anyway, they have a heads that are that are where they kind of get the material from the same place. The, the Mylar heads are from the same place that Remo does. And so I've been using attack heads for a long time. Um, and uh, those are my main uh, endorsements. What projects are you working on now? And okay. uh, do you have anything that you are promoting? Well, uh, so the, the, the things that I do now are sort of spread out amongst a few different artists and projects. So uh, for the last few years, I've been playing the music for the, the Amazon series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And um, I still am doing that. I'm also doing on-camera stuff. They have an on-camera band that, that will be for uh, shown next season. Um, I uh, So that is uh, keeping me somewhat busy because um, they're kind of in full swing now. I work with Paul Schaefer, who was the, formerly the music director for the David Letterman show, and we've been doing his symphony shows. Um, we have we just did one in Southern California in Long Beach. We did one in uh, Vancouver. We're about to do one in uh, another one in Canada. I hope that we'll bring it closer to home. I have a gig at Carnegie Hall coming up with the New York Pops, I, I guest with them sometimes. I love playing with them. Um, uh, there's a, an artist named Brian Stokes Mitchell, who's a, a, a fantastic singer, and I'm in his band and work with him, both uh, with his small group and um, uh, orchestra shows. Um, I did the Steve. There's a. I did one song for Steve Martin show, uh, uh, "Only Murders in the Building." So that's, that's a song that was produced for that show. And Halston, there's a series, Halston, and I, I worked on that. Um, then there's a, John Miller has a band, and I play in that band, and we, we play every few months. Tony Kniff, uh, he's another bass player leader, and he has a band, and I play with that band. Larry Saltzman's in that band, by the way. And that's at the bitter end, and that's, that's monthly those are the things that I'm doing right now and recordings wherever and whenever. And I have a studio in, in my house here on the other side of this wall. And I do uh, projects for people and, you know, uh, they, they send me their tracks and I play along. did a few of those records recently. That's, that's me. And where can people find you on social media? 
So I, I, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram um, and I'm so lame. I don't have a website, but I do post stuff on Facebook uh, and I make it public now almost all the time. That took me a while to figure that out. And Instagram, I'm putting stuff there. And when I have gigs, um, like I did one with a guitar player named uh, Sean Harkness. Uh, we did a gig recently at Birdland. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll post about the gigs, the local gigs, the gigs that aren't local before they happen, uh, usually. Sounds like you're doing amazing things and you've done amazing things in the past and you are an amazing person to talk to. Likewise. And thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's great to be part of your podcast. And I think what you're doing is really uh, noble and special and uh, goes beyond, you know, you, you've uncovered something that was kind of the, nobody ever did this, for instance, for, for recording, I think, right, as an example. But what you're doing is, uh, is uh, uncovering uh, the mystery. Uh, and so, you know, look, uh, we've talked about so many of the factors. There are other factors. Uh, you know, I have, uh, Jonathan Haas, who's the, the head of the percussion, uh, at NYU and, uh, just a fantastic person and a, and a learned, uh, teacher. And I, I, once in a while I do something at NYU for him. It's a, a sort of master classes thing. And, uh, uh, I start by telling people, um, think about this very carefully. Uh, it's, he says, don't do that. He says, just, you're just there to, to provide information and inspiration. And I, 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 I embrace his point of view. But there's a part of me, because of who I am, that thinks, okay, this is what you want to do. You want to move to this very, ex first of all, shows generally don't run very long, right? Right. And, and there are loads of guys, great musicians who have had shows and don't have them now. Right. And then, so that's, you know, then you're also talking about being in a city, which is outrageously expensive, very dirty, very noisy, very angry. Right. And, and overcrowded. Um, I mean, if after all this, you still want to do it, God bless, but think about it. You know, if you, if you have a piece of the pie somewhere and you're gigging and you're teaching and you're learning and you, you like where you are, New York is, is its own animal. You're taking something pretty heavy on and there's lots of things going on between economics and politics and social things that are, uh, that make it uh, more challenging than ever. So uh, keep all of that in mind. The other thing to, that I think is also important to realize is that, and this happened with the jingle business, uh, and I'm sorry, this is like a prologue, or is that, you know, we're a, a rather a, a, a monologue, but I, I, what happened with the jingle business where it was centralized and there were like five big jingle houses, right? And, and you know, you could go to X, Y, and Z uh, if you wanted to, 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 to do those. They were the main. And then suddenly, everybody who had a computer became a jingle house and the business became like factionalized and, and, um, 
and uh, compartmentalized, and, and suddenly there was no central thing. This has happened to Broadway, too. Every show, almost, is a new power structure. It might be a new conductor, um, uh, might be a new associate conductor, might be a new composer, might be a new orchestrator, right? Somebody, and, 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 and the contractors that we know of, the guys you've interviewed, um, might not be involved until the nucleus of the band has already been formed. So, so this makes it that much more challenging because, you know, the, it used to be the contractors could put you on shows uh, with, with greater ease. Now the nucleus uh, of the band might already be in existence before the contractors even brought on. So these are all various things to keep in mind, you know. Uh, I, I just feel like it's important to, to know all of that, you know, and to, when you're making an informed decision. Also, be able to read well. Uh, there are a couple of guys who have gotten by uh, based on the fact that they can play well, but they don't read well. And uh, there are people who don't want to tolerate that. So, you know, get that together. And, and, and no one wants to wait on you while you figure it out because you can't read particularly well. Yeah, especially when, when money's on the line and, and money is, time is money. Yep. And they put something in front of you and they, they count things off. You just got to sink or swim. And if you want yeah. to uh, succeed, you better learn how to swim. Indeed. Great conversation and uh, looking forward to hanging one more time or not one more time, many, many times over. And I'm yeah, sure yeah, for sure. I'll come sure. check you out whenever you're playing and, and uh, definitely keep me posted. I sure will. Thank you so much, Clayton. Appreciate right. it. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Be well. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at BroadwayDrumming101.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.